You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. So, Tim Massid, uh, welcome to this Toronto Centre webinar. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. So, Tim, you're a, a lawyer by training and profession, uh, and then spent some time as the chief counsel to congr- a congressional oversight panel for the Trouble Asset Relief Program, an assistant secretary to the U.S. Treasury, chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and currently a senior fellow at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. So clearly in a position to offer some unique insights into financial services and regulation. Thank you. And you're clearly still active in the world of financial regulation and you've just published a paper on crypto assets for the Brookings Economics Studies series. So what is it that drives you to keep worrying and thinking about (laughs) regulation? Well, I guess I should maybe first say what's not driving me, which is I don't represent any financial institution today, so I'm not advocating for any uh, anyone's uh, particular agenda. You know, having spent eight years um, first at Treasury fighting the financial crisis then implementing post-crisis reforms, uh, I care about making sure the financial system uh, remains stable, is accountable, is transparent, has integrity, and is a system that, you know, serves uh, the real economy. So uh, I just speak out occasionally on issues that I care about. Great. So let's focus for a moment on crypto assets. Yeah. Uh, what do you see as the main risks from that sector? Sure. Well, it's a very, very interesting area. And let me say first, you know, there's a lot of interesting potential here. But I would say that the problem we have today in the U.S. and in many countries is that crypto assets don't fit neatly into the regulatory framework that we have. Um, and so right now we have institutions that are developed exchanges, trading platforms, wallets that aren't subject to the traditional principles we apply in other financial markets that ensure transparency, integrity, accountability. And so there's a fair amount of fraud and manipulation going on and the lack of investor protection. The second thing is it's a broader problem than simply protecting the investors who choose to be in that market in that cryptocurrencies are used uh, for illicit payments, illegal payments, and I think the sector poses uh, a cyber risk in that we've done so much in the financial system generally to strengthen cybersecurity protections, but this class of institutions isn't subject to those rules. And while it's small, it doesn't operate in isolation. So I am concerned also about the cyber risk just because cyber attacks can have unpredictable collateral consequences. And we do see a lot of these trading platforms getting hacked uh, frequently. Okay, so thanks for that outline of the main risks. I suppose moving on in terms of thinking about it as a financial services regulator, yeah. uh, the question then is how best to address those sure, risks. Sure. So there seems to be a spectrum of possibilities there. Some countries have already taken moves basically to ban Mm-hmm. the use of crypto assets, so far as that's possible. Uh, others might argue that the only thing you need to do here is give a very 
large uh, caveat emptor type warning mm -hmm. to potential investors mm -hmm. to say that you invest in these assets at your peril uh, and then just leave it to them. And if they choose to go past that warning and carry on, well, that's their problem, not someone else's problem. So where are you on that spectrum? So I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess I, I, I would apply the principle that I think we followed in a lot of other markets, at least in the U.S., which is we don't make judgments on what people should invest in, in the sense that we don't tell them, well, this is a good investment, that's a bad investment. We require um, principles that ensure transparency, integrity, fairness, accountability, and then people can make the decisions they want to make. You know, when you when you want to do an initial public offering in the U.S., for example, the SEC doesn't judge you based on the value of the company, whether it's a good company or a bad company or a socially useful company. They just say, look, meet these basic standards, and you can make an, uh, an IPO. And I think the same principle should apply here. And I say that not only because it's a good principle, but because I can't predict what's going to happen with this sector. Um, I think we're, we're still sort of in phase 1.0, if we can mm -hmm. use that terminology, in that we may see this go through multiple phases before we, you know, be, before we get to things that are truly um, useful. I mean, right now, for example, I have a fair amount of skepticism about the value of cryptocurrencies just because they don't really meet the test of a currency, right? They're not a stable source of value because they're very volatile. Uh, they're not really that useful as a medium of exchange because you can't really make that many transactions. They're not used as a unit of account. But might they evolve into something else? Yeah, possibly. So I think apply the same principles we've applied elsewhere. Let people invest and we'll see where it goes. So what does that application of the same principles look sure. like? I mean, yeah. Some might say, well, if you're doing that, you just need to decide whether a crypto asset is a security. Yes or a currency or a commodity mm -hmm. and then just take all the relevant regulations that apply to that off the shelf and apply them to crypto assets? That's, that's partly true. The problem is um, I don't think you can just apply them off the shelf. Mm -hmm. You're right though that part of the problem here is is it a security, is it a commodity, is it something else? It can be any of those things mm -hmm. and sometimes a crypto asset may have features of more than one. In the US at least our problem is that because of that, we have gaps in regulation. The SEC has a certain amount of authority if it, if it is a security. But even then, if it's a security, you know, the, the principles on then how you take custody, how you ensure uh, fair trading may be different than what we do for other types of securities. The CFTC, my former agency, has jurisdiction if it's a commodity. But what that means is that the CFTC regulates derivatives that use cryptocurrencies meaning a future that's based on Bitcoin or a swap that's based on Bitcoin. So neither agency actually regulates the market, the cash market that mm -hmm. is, for digital assets that are not deemed securities. So we have to, I think, um, amend the laws to make sure we cover that. And I would also like to see us take affirmative action to, to set up some rules so that we're not just creating uh, regulation through enforcement actions. That's what's happening today, right? The SEC, I, I generally applaud what the SEC is doing in this space, but in the US at least, we're developing rules by way of enforcement cases, mm -hmm. as opposed to the way we truly develop rules, which is we have a public process. 
notice and comment, where people can make a comment and say, well, I think the rule should work a certain way. Mm -hmm. I think that would be better. So I, I'd like to see us move more to that. And do you think this is just a matter of writing some new rules, or do you think it's about going back and questioning the institutional structure of regulation yeah. itself? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost it's a matter of Congress giving a little bit more authority to our existing agencies, and I would make that at a very high principles level. I don't want Congress trying to write detailed uh, rules, because it's a difficult area, it's very technical, and it's going to evolve. Um, but I think they do have to give a, a, our existing agencies a little bit more authority to apply those traditional principles that ensure things like transparency and integrity to this new sector. And by that I mean the trading platforms, the exchanges, the wallets, the custodians, and so forth. Uh, but it will evolve over, over time. And that's why it's better to vest the authority in a regulatory agency than to try to write some detailed law. Mm -hmm. And do you think that regulatory authority is ever going to be in a position to cover all of the different aspects of well, crypto assets? I mean, sure. you, you've mentioned the crypto asset itself, for yeah. example, Bitcoin or Ethereum. But behind that somewhere, you've got uh, yeah. these trading platforms, clearing and settlement, payment, custodian services, all going on somewhere, possibly in the same place, sure. possibly in different trading sure. platforms, and who's, who's going to pick up all of those disparate pieces? Well, I, I think um, the SEC and or the CFTC can mm -hmm. do that in terms of, of those various players. We've done that. It takes time, though, and they'll mm -hmm. need extra resources. It's not going to happen overnight. The, the uh, challenge, though, with, with again, with uh, digital assets is, you know, maybe there still is a group of them that shouldn't be subject to regulation as financial instruments. Mm -hmm. That's often said of what are called utility tokens, things that are really more of a right to use an application. The problem is there seem to be very few utility tokens that anyone can identify. People gr agree that there is a group called utility tokens, but there don't seem to be that many out there. But um, because, again, digital assets cut across our existing categories, uh, we do have to approach this you know, being nimble about it and with some finesse, if you will. Okay, and what about what I suppose you might call crypto assets version two? Yeah. Um, you know, you've got people out there trying to issue crypto assets, which they call stable coin or whatever. Sure, it's, sure. Uh, supposedly pegged to some other asset or commodity yeah. or currency. Yeah. Uh, do you think this is going to evolve in a particular direction? It's hard to say, you know. And now Facebook apparently is going to come out with a, with a stable coin in a, in a few weeks. Um, look, I, I want to make clear, I, I think we should not prevent or get in the way of the innovation as long as it's done in a manner that, again, ensures investor protection as far as it comes to investment and also doesn't create these external risks such as the, the cyber risk yeah. and the illicit payment risk. I'm not smart enough to predict where it goes. Uh, I'm curious. Um, you know, I think DLT, distributed ledger technology, has a lot of interesting potential applications. People talk about um, digitizing land records. If you've mm -hmm. ever been through a house closing, you know you know what a nightmare it is, at least in the U.S., to uh, do a title search and to get title insurance. And you know our laws on mortgages and those sorts of things that that varies by state. So having systems that might create some efficiencies there um, is uh, is very exciting. So. That's why I say it's such a broad category. There's a lot of potential in the underlying technology. Um, there's a lot of potential applications. 
I don't know that everything will get tokenized uh, you know, in the next few years, but I do want to see the innovation happen. I just want it to be done in a responsible way. And I, and I think, frankly, a better regulatory framework can enhance innovation because it gives, it gives investors more certainty. You've mentioned cybersecurity a couple of times. Uh, so two questions on that. First, which particular aspects of crypto assets uh, do you think leave them most susceptible to cybersecurity? Sure. And secondly, if I was a regulator or a supervisor with limited resources, you know, why would I worry much about cybersecurity in the crypto asset space? Sure. When actually what I'm really worried about perhaps is cybersecurity for large systemically important players like banks or insurance companies. Well, you certainly should as a regular regulator be worried about crypto uh, about cybersecurity for those large players. I think in fact we've taken a lot of steps, we meaning all the financial regulators, securities regulators, CFTC when I was there, the bank regulators in the US and this has happened in other countries to strengthen cybersecurity uh, mm -hmm. across the board. It's an ongoing battle. Uh, we have to keep at it. My concern with the world of crypto assets is that this growing group of institutions isn't subject to those rules. And while it is a small sector, it doesn't operate in isolation. It has connections to the rest of the system. Uh, you know, you have big players like Fidelity getting involved in this space. You have um, trading firms, uh, high-frequency trading firms who are co-locating at uh, crypto exchanges that already co-locate at other exchanges. I'm not a cyber expert, but I worry that because we have a set of institutions that isn't even subject to those standards that we've imposed mm -hmm. on other players, has, uh, may not have the strongest defenses. They don't have a s always sufficient incentive. Mm -hmm. And we've seen lots of hacks in this sector. There have been a number of cyber intrusions in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the world of crypto intermediaries. So while I wouldn't want regulators to spend so much time that they take the, their eye off the big institutions, I think if we had a basic regulatory framework that covered the crypto institutions and that mm -hmm. required them to have basic standards of cybersecurity, basic standards of system safeguards. You know, these institutions don't have to even report when they have an outage in trading. Mm -hmm. And we require that of our exchanges. Um, so that's the kind of standards I like to yeah. see. And what about money laundering? I mean, there are those who say money laundering can't be a problem because if you're doing this through uh, the basis of distributed ledger technology, there's always the record there. And you yeah. can trace the transactions back and therefore Money right. laundering is not a problem. Right. On the other hand, people say, well, it is a problem because unlike dealing in most securities, people tend to deal direct in crypto assets rather than through an intermediary who's already vetted them under right. know your customer type guidelines. So what's your view on money laundering well, in crypto there's, assets? Well, there's a little bit of truth in both things you said, uh -huh. right? In that, um, I'll give you a couple of examples. I was once talking with an FBI agent who said, well, look, I mean, it's easier to trace than a, than a suitcase full of cash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you can go on the blockchain and you see the whole history. He said, on the other hand, uh, you know, the people that are doing nefarious things will, will make a series of transfers and they'll use tumblers and other devices mm -hmm. to hide their identity. There was a recent report uh, by an outfit called Chain Analysis that looked at a lot of the recent hacks and said that a lot of the recent hacks were actually done by two organized criminal uh, um, mm -hmm. crime groups. 
and they often made like 5,000 or more transfers of uh, bitcoins that they obtained through hacking in order to conceal identity. Mm -hmm. So it is a problem. I think banking regulators, our uh, FinCEN, which is our organization in the U.S. that applies mm -hmm. anti-money laundering standards, they've tried to tackle this. But I think if we had uh, a regulatory framework that ensured better transparency on these exchanges, uh, we could do a better job. The chain analysis report, for example, that showed these groups using 5,000 transfers for one hack pointed out that the exchanges, it's often they're doing this through existing exchanges. The exchanges don't know the origin. They don't know that the origin of the funds is criminal today. So we need to have, I think, better standards of transparency in order to do the right job on AML and KYC. Mm -hmm. Then one other aspect that regulators might worry about is some form of market manipulation. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of volatility in the prices of some crypto assets over time. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think some of that is down to market manipulation? Oh, or? absolutely, absolutely. And there have been a series of reports that have shown this. The more recent one was by actually a firm that's in this mm -hmm. space that that came out with a report that said basically um, over 80% of the volume on the top 80 exchanges around the world was fake. That um, was kind of a surprising number. Um, another report by a professor at the University of Texas uh, showed that Tether, uh, the, the, the coin Tether was being used to manipulate Bitcoin through linkages mm -hmm. there. The Wall Street Journal came out with a report on uh, pump and dump schemes um, on a number of exchanges. So I think there have been a number of reports that have shown that there's a fair amount of manipulation going on. Mm -hmm. And again, it's because we don't have uh, basic standards. You know, in the securities and derivatives uh, worlds, in our markets in the U.S., we have uh, governmental standards, but we also have self-regulatory uh, organizations that uh, make sure these exchanges are, are uh, observing those standards and have their own surveillance operations to detect and prevent manipulation. We need that in, mm -hmm. in the crypto world. Right. It's early days and regulators and supervisors around the world are clearly struggling to keep up with all of the different innovations happening out there, but are there any particular countries that you would point to to say, well, they've been particularly successful in dealing with crypto assets in well, terms of regulation? I think everyone's struggling still. Mm -hmm. I think everyone, most countries are facing a similar problem, which is that this is an innovation that cuts across the existing regulatory framework that doesn't fit neatly into our existing regulatory, mm -hmm. regulatory categories. That's a common phenomenon with regulation, we see, with innovation, right? Mm -hmm. You see that over and over again when you study financial history. Things come along that don't fit neatly in the box, yeah. and then regulators have to figure out what to do. Um, so I think everyone is, is more or less dealing with the same ideas. Um, the challenge, of course, is because it is a global uh, uh, sector, it's hard for one country to do something um, uh, unless other countries kind of do something similar. So we do need to have, uh, we do need to have uh, development of international standards at some mm. point. Although some would argue that actually countries are not doing things which are very similar at the moment. Some would say that there yes, are some countries true. who are trying to attract crypto asset business on the basis that they're extremely well and heavily regulated. Right. And other countries who some would argue 
are engaged more in a race to the bottom and saying, come and play here because we're not going to regulate or supervise you right. very intensively. I mean, do you think there's going to be a race to the top or a race to the bottom? Well, I, th I think we've got those things going on and obviously the greater risk is a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen uh, countries, we're seeing countries do that, uh, trying to lower their standards. In the U.S., we're seeing states do that. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, um, what little regulation we have of crypto exchanges often comes at the state level through what are called the money transfer <coughs> laws. And we've seen some states uh, dramatically lower those or remove those um, in the case of uh, digital assets in order to attract that business. Mm -hmm. I think that's a problem. Um, so I think, you know, as in other areas, my advice to legislators in the U.S. would be we should still lead. We should still step forward and come up with what we think is the right framework and then try to encourage other institutions to follow. And you've got international bodies, I think, which are looking at that. Uh, the yeah. FSB is, uh, is spending <clears throat> some time on this. Uh, IOSCO, the Organization mm -hmm. of Securities Commissions, is spending time on this. So I'd like to see us move toward good international standards. I recognize there's a risk of, of a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Tim, we focus mostly on crypto assets up to now. What about other aspects of fintech? You know, where yeah. in that spectrum are the problems that would worry you most? And do you think regulators and supervisors are reacting in the right way to them? Sure. Well, you know, the, the term fintech, <coughs> of course, is so broad. It covers mm -hmm. lots of things. And one, one way to look at it, of course, is how long will we even use that term, mm -hmm. right? We don't, for example, refer to companies as internet companies anymore. We did for a while. Mm -hmm. But now every company has an internet strategy, right? So we don't use that term anymore. Presumably we'll get to a point where that's true of fintech also. Mm -hmm. We'll stop saying, well, that's a fintech company. Um, but there's a lot of exciting things, I think, that are happening out there that interest me and a lot of challenges uh, for regulators. Um, I think one of the biggest things that will be a challenge is the developments we're seeing will challenge the traditional notion we've had of the separation between banking and commerce. Mm -hmm. We've had that for years, yeah. for centuries, really, because we didn't want <clears throat> banking organizations dominating uh, commerce, dominating manufacturing, and so forth. Now, of course, we kind of face the reverse problem, mm -hmm. which is, uh, large technology companies, if they start to move into financial services, how do we think about them? How do we think about an organization like WeChat, uh, which tries to be all in one, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. uh, a way to send messages to your friends, it's a way to keep up with the news, now it's a way to make payments, now they're paying interest on your deposits. Is it a bank? It starts to look a lot like a bank. Um, so I think that will be one of the most interesting challenges that regulators will face, is how do, we, how do we think about those activities? Because banking and, and the financial system generally is unique compared to other industries in that it is susceptible to runs and panics. If conditions are such that people worry about the fate of the economy and the fate of the financial system and decide they want to pull their money out of the bank and that happens to more than one bank and then another bank and then we can have a run, we can have a panic. Mm -hmm. um, we had 
a panic in 2008, not so much with deposits in banks, but with short-term funding of non-banks. So as we see technology companies potentially move into financial services, how will we assess that risk? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, competition in financial services is a good thing, right? And we do have very large uh, financial institutions uh, that pose financial stability risks to the extent that their market share is reduced because we have other players offering services, mm -hmm. that could be a positive thing. And obviously there are efficiencies from it. So I think that will be one of the biggest <coughs> challenges. Beyond that, there's lots of yeah. exciting things happening in fintech that we can talk about. But. Yeah. Well, just to pick up on one aspect of yeah. that, Tim, the, um, the concentration versus competition. Um, it seems to me that in the early stages, it looks as if you're getting a lot of competition because you get a lot of startup firms entering the market right. and it's all very exciting and you get a lot of diversity. But actually what seems to happen next is that the more successful of them are bought by sure. the large incumbent players. Yep. So at least in terms of what's happening between the large incumbent players and the small startups, is that arguably you're, get, arguably you're going to end up with less competition and more concentration yep. because some of the largest and most successful banks are going to get even bigger. And we know that there are very large economies of scale in the, any use of data and technology. So Absolutely. things could be driving that way. And the competition may come instead as you say, from some of the non-financial companies mm -hmm. moving into the financial sector. Is that where you see the competition from, or are you hopeful that some of the new entrants will make it big? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, <clears throat> that is clearly a risk, and that is clearly a dynamic we've seen play out in, in a number of areas, you know, to, to look at that a couple different ways. When you look back at, at how Bitcoin and how mm -hmm. digital assets were launched, Bitcoin in particular, the vision was that this was going to reduce our reliance on large intermediaries, right? Mm -hmm. Go back and look at Satoshi Nakamoto's original white paper. That's what mm -hmm. it talks about. And a lot of people then said that, 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 uh, that it would lead to that kind of reduction and even address problems of the financial crisis. We may very well see large existing financial institutions be the ones that benefit from things mm -hmm. like blockchain because they will develop permission-based systems mm -hmm. that enhance their market share or enhance their power. Um, with technology companies, obviously we've seen the big technology companies acquire competitors in their own markets many times over. Facebook has done that, uh, Google has done that, mm -hmm. or Alphabet has done that. Um, so if they start to move into financial services, what happens then? It's a very hard thing to predict, but I think you know that we've got to we've got to have a regulatory system that not only uh, values financial stability but also recognizes that um, concentration can mm -hmm. be a risk it can be a risk because it leads to mm -hmm. greater risk of a run but also in and of itself in terms of concentration of power uh, particularly when uh, you're talking about this concentration of data mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be one of the big challenges of the next era. Right. And if we shift from financial stability to consumer protection, mm -hmm. um, clearly there are all sorts of benefits and advantages for consumers sure. in the use of fintech. Uh, there are those who write about fintech forcing financial institutions to become more consumer-centric. Uh, but at the same time concerns that what we're really doing here is reinventing some old risks in new clothing. 
So what does fintech do in part? Arguably, it provides an opportunity for existing financial institutions to part consumers from their money in new and original ways, uh, but with the same basic short-term profit-driven motive behind it. Mm -hmm. So are you an optimist that fintech <laughs> will bring massive advantages to consumers or perhaps a pessimist that it could just lead to new ways of not necessarily treating yeah. customers very well? Well, I'm an optimist overall, but I also um, feel that regulation is critical for uh, the reasons you've pointed out. Um, this, this, you know, we, we have to have a regulatory system that applies the traditional principles that we care about of consumer protection, of fairness, of accountability to these new innovations. And that may require uh, modifying our rules to make them work because we're going to see excesses. We see it all the time with innovation, right? Things start out that are clearly uh, good things, they provide consumer advantages, but then they kind of expand, they morph, and they result in excesses. We saw that with subprime mm -hmm. mortgage lending. Subprime mortgage lending at first, that was a great thing. It, it was mm -hmm. providing access to the American dream to lots of people who had been shut out. And at first, the terms of those loans weren't really all that aggressive and weren't that, you know, were, were okay. But they became more and more aggressive, more deceptive over time uh, until it was really a big problem because it was largely out of the purview of regulation. Um, we'll have the same challenges here. We'll certainly have people using AI, uh, using machine learning to uh, do things that uh, sort of cross the boundary. Mm -hmm. and that um, end up being deceptive, end up being manipulative, and we'll have to address those. Right. Well, thanks a lot for that, Tim. That's great on uh, crypto assets and fintech, but as I say, it would be a shame to uh, waste a good crisis. <laughs> and you were there at the center of it in the U.S., dealing with the Trouble Assets Relief Program. Yeah. So what are the main lessons that you would take from the financial crisis? Well, there were many. Um, I guess I would say a couple things. The first is the nature of how the system, the financial system, can evolve, can morph to find ways out around the existing framework, around the existing mm -hmm. regulatory framework. We saw that with the shadow banking sector. We saw that with uh, subprime mortgage origination that then uh, was distributed through securitizations and, and then had derivatives put on top of it and basically a lot of that was outside the purview of regulators. And then that uh, creates a dynamic uh, uh, for uh, a potential problem. You know, the growth of the um, shadow banking sector and its dependence on short-term runnable funding mm -hmm. compared to insured deposits was one of the key factors of the crisis. So that would be number, number one. Second thing I would say is, if we do have a panic, if we do have a crisis as we did in 2008, the government has to have very strong tools to deal with it. Yet, the use of those tools um, is probably going to provoke a political reaction because mm -hmm. it, it often does uh, feel like you're giving medical care to the arsonists, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, providing uh, capital to banks that were in part responsible for the problems uh, to most Americans uh, seems abhorrent, as it, mm -hmm. as it should, particularly if it's taxpayer-funded capital. Yeah. And so that means 
I guess the third lesson is that's why we have to have a strong uh, regulatory system mm -hmm. to uh, try to cope with these things. Problem is, regulators, as I say, are always running to catch up. We won't, the regulators won't necessarily foresee uh, the trouble uh, before it comes, but we've at least got to try. Well, thanks for that analysis, Tim. One aspect of that is the success of the TARP program mm -hmm. in recapitalizing the yeah. American banks early in the financial crisis and enabling them to be in a stronger position to lend and help the US economy to grow again. You know, some people would contrast that with the experience in the European Union, where it seemed as if it took much longer for the banks to recapitalize. Right. And they've remained uh, in some countries in a pretty weak state ever since. And some would say that's also con contributed to relatively low growth in Europe. And that would seem to be an argument, as you say, for government to use the tools at their disposal. At the same time, the Financial Stability Board, uh, in its work on resolution regimes, uh, says, well, actually, what they're trying to do is to get to a world where public support is not necessary. Mm -hmm. And you deal with the crises basically by bailing in creditors of the right. bank, right. Not, not using government money. So is there a contrast here somewhere to be drawn between yeah. the success of the TARP program yeah. and the longer-term aspirations not to use public money? Well. Let me say a couple things. I mean, first, I think in the U.S. our experience showed that attacking the crisis with overwhelming force, if mm -hmm. you will, did pay off. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just the TARP program. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Federal Reserve took a number of extraordinary actions. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a guarantee of money market funds. We had a lot of actions that basically provided capital, liquidity to the system, as well as guarantees of liabilities. And the combination of those worked. But uh, that also creates moral hazard. Uh, if mm -hmm. institutions think they're going to be bailed out, that's a problem. Um, so then uh, we have to take steps to deal with that. I agree that we should be trying to achieve a world where there isn't the need for public support of, uh, of institutions. Um, in the U.S., actually, we've, we've, frankly, we've cut a lot of the emergency authorities <laughs> Uh, that we had before because of this political reaction. So we're in, a, we're in an odd situation in a way in the U.S. in that I think the financial system is stronger today because of all the actions we've taken to reform it. We've made banks stronger by requiring them to have more capital. We've required them to have liquidity uh, measures. Uh, we've dealt with the derivatives industry. We've created a framework for regulation of that. We've created better resolution powers. Uh, we've got stress testing. Mm -hmm. You know, we've done a number of things to make the system stronger. But we've also cut back on some of the emergency powers that mm -hmm. we had. So if there is another crisis, we're going to have to go back to Congress, potentially, mm -hmm. uh, if we need those emergency authorities. Now, I understand why we did that. We did that because of the moral hazard problem, because people don't like uh, giving support to those institutions. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the, that's the tricky part of this, is how do you make sure the government has the tools it needs to fight a crisis should a crisis come, but at the same time maintain uh, discipline and accountability you know, mm -hmm. and not create moral hazard in, in the financial industry. Um, I think part of the solution to that is not just the steps we've taken, 
but I think we have to look harder at the incentives for individuals, compensation structures or other programs to make sure in, individuals within these institutions um, have the right incentives. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Tim, public support is politically controversial. Yep. And you know, one of the reactions, as you say, to a financial crisis was politicians saying, never again. Right. Uh, and therefore, hoping to remove that moral hazard problem, but right. not, not quite doing so because people don't quite believe them. Um, equally, the move towards resolution regimes has, has meant that in those countries where banks have been put into resolution, where some creditors have uh, effectively been wiped out or converted into equity in a way that would not have happened before, that also has political ramifications because mm -hmm. yep. those creditors are uh, for example, in the case of Italy, there have been cases where the creditors are individual depositors right. who, for whatever reason, bought right. subordinated debt in a bank without quite realising what would happen to them mm -hmm. under resolution. Uh, in other cases, there are other banks, other insurers, pension funds, ultimately representing you know, real people right. um, and the wealth of those people. So one way or the other, even though resolution sounds like a very neat solution, someone still has to bear the cost. Well, that's true. and and. Similar thing can be said of the idea of you know let's let's eliminate the potential for public support and mm -hmm. have bail-in yeah. debt right. And yeah. The theory of that is let's require banks to have debt that can be converted to capital if there's uh, a deteriorating situation, if there's a stressful situation. It sounds good in principle, mm -hmm. but then you play out the scenario. Well, if we enter a period of financial stress and one bank uh, triggers that conversion, what happens uh, to the market for the bonds issued by other banks that are similarly convertible? Do investors suddenly say, well, I want out of this because that could happen to my bank too? And does it then accelerate uh, the potential for a panic? Very tricky question. Mm -hmm. um, we've gone forward with this type of bail-in about debt um, we don't know how it'll play out. Uh, it's certainly better uh, than saying the government is going to provide taxpayer funds. No one likes that. Um, but again, I think that points back to the, to the need for a regulatory system that tries, number one, to uh, uh, address the potential for risks uh, through high capital standards, through stress tests, through liquidity standards and also through um, having the right incentives for individuals and having accountability for individuals within these institutions. That's a tough problem because you know, a lot of people said, well, why didn't more people go to jail in the crisis? And you look at what happened and yeah, no, big ex no uh, senior executives really went to jail because a lot of this stuff wasn't illegal. Mm -hmm. It was poor judgment, it was excessive risk, but it wasn't illegal. Um, so we have to really think harder about how to create the right incentives within mm -hmm. institutions. And part of that's compensation and it's potentially other measures as well. Mm -hmm. So one last question. As you know, Toronto Centre goes around the world training supervisors yes. in good supervision. Right. Uh, what advice would you give supervisors? And let me be a little bit more specific by <laughs> what I mean by that. Um, if I was a supervisor and I wanted to write two, three, four things down on a piece of paper and stick it on my desk and ask myself on a right. Wednesday afternoon halfway through the week, have I really 
followed that advice right. in, in what I'm doing and the way I deal with firms when I yeah. regulate. Yeah. Uh, what do you think they should write on that piece of paper and yeah, stick to their question. desk? Well, I would say first, act, act with not just integrity, mm -hmm. but really always try to do the right thing from a policy standpoint. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can be in a situation where there are political pressures, there's other kinds of pressures, um, but you really have to always try to say to yourself, what's the right policy approach mm -hmm. here? and let the chips fall where they may. That doesn't mean you ignore the political constraints, because those can be real. Mm -hmm. You sometimes have to work to loosen the political constraints on doing the right thing. But I think you've always got to make sure you recognize the difference between, you know, mm -hmm. what's that policy correct thing, and then what do I have to do politically maybe to, to make mm -hmm. it feasible. Um, that's number one. I guess number two would be to recognize that the system, financial system, is going to constantly evolve and change. Mm -hmm. And it helps to know where it came from, something about the history, but also to recognize that it will change. Mm -hmm. And the parameters you've set today may not work in the future. And you've got to think about how to make, you know, how to apply the same principles but to an ever-evolving and changing financial system. Okay, well, thanks very much, Tim. Thanks Thank for those you. fantastic insights. Uh, I'm sure it'll be extremely valuable to all of those who listen to this webinar. So thanks a lot for your time, but more than anything, thanks a lot for those great insights. Thank you, Clive. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Mm -hmm.